Amen. Thanks, Justin. Can you guys hear me okay? All right. Good morning. Welcome to Sojourn Church. It is an honor and a privilege to be able to stand up here before you guys and open the Word of God and talk through it. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 15, starting in verse 15, so I'd encourage you to go ahead and get your Bible ready. If you don't have a Bible, we have some here for you. One of the gentlemen in the back can walk down and give one to you, so raise your hand. We'd love for you to not only read that this morning, but also to take it home if you don't have one that you own yourself. You know, another thing that I noticed when we looked at the bulletins this morning, there's not a sheet on the inside to take notes. So for the new guy preaching, what that means, right, okay, there's not a whole lot of value coming out what we're going to talk about this morning, right? It's a good humbling way to start the sermon. Uh, but no, in reality, I would encourage you guys, even if you're not big note takers, whether you take notes Sunday morning or don't, like just process it shortly thereafter. Write some, write some things down that you've learned and that God's challenging you on. So I want to start this morning with a question, okay? Think about this. What is your idea of rest? And where do you find your rest? So I'm the father of four young kids, seven and under. And I asked my wife, Melanie, that question as I was getting ready. And she had to think. She's like, I don't really remember what rest is. So when do you think you had that last rest? Probably... Eight, nine years ago, maybe. So that's kind of that aspect of physical rest. And when we do get that physical rest, it's great and it's refreshing, but we need more. So it points to something much greater. The author is going to argue this morning that Jesus is that better rest. So that's what we're going to take a look look at this morning. Today, specifically, also, the author is going to challenge us on our worldview, I think, of Christianity. He's going to push on areas that we probably aren't comfortable with in our modern Western view of Christianity. So I'd encourage you guys to hang in there so that whether you're a Christ follower or whether you're not a Christ follower, that worldview is going to get pushed on and challenged a little bit. The audience he's writing to is experiencing suffering, shame, difficulty, loss of possessions, loss of jobs, loss of opportunity, loss of family, and even loss of life because they have chosen to to accept Christ, to follow him, which has changed their entire life. So that's the audience he's talking to. The temptation that they're facing in the midst of that suffering and trial is that life would be better and easier if they would just go back to the way they were before. Turn away from Christ and find that easier life in what the world, what their jobs, what their family has to offer. So the author of Hebrews poses a question. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to turn from Christ and get this? Giving up this. And I think that's probably a question that we often ask ourselves, though maybe not directly in our minds, in the subjectivism of our own hearts and throughout our own lives. So this week, we're going to continue the argument that Justin started last week, halfway through chapter 3. Last week, Justin talked about kind of the what, like do not harden your hearts when you hear the voice of God. And he talked a little bit about the how to not do that, which is by encouraging and exhorting each other every day. What we're going to look at in our passage this morning is the why. Why is it important that we do not harden our hearts? Why is it important that we encourage one another? There's going to be four components 
of the author's argument. The first one we're going to see is the example of the Israelites. Second one we're going to see is an exhortation to fear. The third one is going to be the what, when, and the who of rest. And the fourth one is going to be the judgment seat of God. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 15. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt followed by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage we've seen before, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For or because the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the word of God. So the first thing we're going to see again is the example of the Israelites. I'm not going to explain this entire uh, component of this text in detail because a lot of it's restating or emphasizing what Justin had preached on last week and kind of rehashing that story of the Israelites that he told us about last week. But I would encourage you guys to go back to the internet, download that message, and listen to it so that you can understand the flow of the word through the whole argument. However, the author does highlight the reason they were drifting away, the reason they could not enter his rest. We see that in verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of un belief. Again, the reason they're drifting away is because of unbelief. They think God is not faithful, God is not able, and God is not good. Again, I would press that question to us. Do you ever struggle with that question yourself? Is God faithful? I mean, is he really faithful in the midst of what I'm walking through? Is he able to really deliver what he has promised? Because I don't see it right now. I don't see it today. And is he good? 
Because what's promised to me in front of my eyes before my flesh says that it is good. I can turn from Christ and have everything restored. That sounds good. And that's what the Israelites were facing. You see, what we believe is not an intellectual assent. It's not like saying two plus two is four. I mean, we can all agree two plus two is four, right? Okay, great. Two plus two is four. If you don't think that, go back to first grade. I think that's where Wes is at. Um, so yeah, what we believe is not simply an intellectual sense. What you believe shapes everything that you do. So their unbelief, the Israelites' unbelief, shaped their understanding of God, shaped their perspective on themselves, and shaped the decision that they made. In addition to shaping them, this unbelief had present and eternal implications. They were unable to enter God's rest. The point is that the Israelites had a close relationship with God through the mediator or the prophet Moses. The message of salvation had been proclaimed to them, trust and follow God. Yet they rebelled because their hearts were hard. They turned away from him over time. This unbelief resulted in total depravity and judgment before God. So this was the Israelites. This is the example of the Israelites. What in the world does that have to do with us? We are removed chronologically from the Israelites by a large span of years. So why is it important to us? Why does the author use them as an example? Because really, we're not any different. We struggle with the same things. We struggle with hope in other people or other things or other circumstances. We get frustrated over our current circumstances, which we see in the life of the Israelites at this time. We have rose-colored glasses that kind of cloud the past. What was back then looks so good, and we forget all the difficulty and hardship that we actually endured in the midst of that. We also have a fear, honestly, like a fear of pain, a fear of suffering, fear of hardship, fear of difficulty. So the Israelites saw these current inhabitants in the land that were massive and could completely destroy them. Like, those are some big bullies they were afraid of. Like, that fear is real. But they chose to not believe the promises of God. And since we are the same, since it seems like us, for us or for the audience, that turning away from Christ could make things seem so much easier in some circumstances and situations, we need to heed their example. And in the component of number the second component, the argument of the author continues with an exhortation to fear. So we see that exhortation starting in verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So we need to fear lest we, in the same way as the Israelites, fall short of God's rest. This kind of pushes on that modern Western Christianity worldview. I'd encourage you to hang with me as we continue to develop the author's argument. The verb to fear that he uses here is not time-bound. So he's not saying fear back then, don't fear now. He's not saying fear in the future or fear in this specific circumstance. There is no time-bound to the use of that verb, much like today that he says previously in the text is a continual understanding of today, continuing to hear from God's voice. That's the same type of verb that we see used in fear. 
And we're to fear because we really can fail to reach his rest. Does that sound difficult? Maybe a little off from what we're used to? Let me say it again. We can fear, or we should fear, because we can fail to enter his rest. We can become hardened to God and turn away from him. Sin honestly tells us that it's not that bad. If we take this step, if we make this decision, if we do this thing, it's really not that bad, and it's not really going to have a big implication in my life. It's just a little decision. Yet drifting, which we've seen throughout Hebrews so far, and I specifically remember when Theodore preached and talked about drifting a lot, like it's a slow drift. As you continue in sin, a slow drift away from God. The Israelites, as we see in this text, drifted for 40 years before they were at the precipice of the promised land, looking at it, and they chose to turn away, to try to go back to Egypt, where they had homes, where they had protection, where they had food, where they had comfort, where they didn't have these armies in front of them that they thought were going to completely and utterly destroy them. However, this is not the only way that we are similar to the Israelites. It's one way that the author brings out. The second way we see in verse 2, for good news came to us just as to them. So let me pause and say that again. Good news has come to us as it has to them. Does that not like floor you guys? So the good news of the gospel of God that's given to us in the word has been given to us by a gracious and merciful God. So we were created by a perfect and a holy God, yet we completely turned away from him, pursuing our own desires. What do we deserve because of that? What do we deserve because we've wronged a holy and a perfect God? Think about the, the threat or the suffering or the consequence of wronging somebody like the President of the United States. If you tried to take him down, one of these guys in this room, and I won't tell you who, is going to make sure that doesn't happen. And that's just the President of the United States, who is not holy and who is not perfect. So our standard to the president is much less than our standard to God, who is holy and who is perfect. And yet, this holy and this perfect God gives us the message of salvation, gives us the good news that we can be saved, that he has made a way through Christ alone. He redeems his people. He brings them, in this case for the Israelites, out of Egypt. He redeems them out of Egypt towards the promised land, the physical rest that points to an eternal rest. And he does the same for us. We have the same message that he redeems us and he saves us through Christ and Christ alone towards an eternal rest. Again, do we deserve this? Have we earned this? No, we haven't de don't deserve this. And no, we haven't earned this. Don't miss the grace and the good news is presented to us as it was to them. But the point of the author is, though we have the good news, though it has been given to us, it didn't benefit them. And why did it not benefit them? We see that in the next part in verse 2. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. In other words, they didn't really believe the message. 
So we can have the message proclaimed, but unless we actually believe it and take hold of it, it's not going to do us any good. That's the point that the author is is making. So the question is, do you believe the message of the gospel given in the word of God? Do you believe the message of the gospel given in the word of God? Again, not an intellectual assent. We can logically look through this and see, okay, this makes sense, this makes sense, A plus B equals C, therefore we're good. But do you really believe the message that has been given to us? Because we have that same entrance requirement. The entrance requirement for us into God's rest is belief and faith. Having faith does not mean that we don't wrestle with doubt and with questions. It does not mean that we don't struggle with how to understand you know, what's going on in our life, asking God questions, why this, why that. It doesn't mean that we don't struggle with that. It doesn't mean that we don't fight an hourly, minutely, daily battle with the sin in our own flesh and trying to bring it in submission to the God of the universe through Christ. It does not mean, faith does not mean those things are not present. But what faith does mean is that it's a simple trust in His Word to be true. And it's a simple trust in God and His character is true to his word. We see this summarized in Hebrews eleven six, which we'll get to in a few weeks. Those who come to God must believe that he is, first of all, and the believe that he is a rewarder of those who seek them, who seek him. So you know that he is and you understand his character. That's simple faith. And we do this in the midst of not really understanding and seeing everything. In the midst of not knowing necessarily what the future holds, we have a simple trust and faith in God and his word and his character. Think of it like childlike faith. So like I said, I've got four young kids. And as they're, they're born and they come into this world, like they are utterly dependent and also utterly trusting of us at that point in time. So that's what Christ tries to draw out when he's talking to the disciples, to have a childlike faith, utter dependence on him and utter trust of him, regardless of what circumstances may come. So when you have faith, it changes everything. Again, I said this before, I'll say it again, it's not an intellectual ascent. It shapes and turns your heart directly towards the God that you worship. It's offering our entire lives, our spiritual service of worship, like Paul puts it. It's a reasonable service of worship, which is another translation of Romans chapter 12, verse 1. So it affects our priorities, affects our time, our reputation, our possessions, our life goals, our relationships, and our jobs. Having faith in Christ, a simple trust in his word, shapes every facet of who you are and what you do. We see many actual examples of this in Hebrews chapter 11, which we're going to get to in several more weeks. I would encourage you guys to go ahead and start reading some of those examples of faith in chapter 11 to try to help put some flesh on the bones of our definition of faith, to try to see it lived out in the lives of some people from the Old Testament. So read ahead, try to see those examples. Pick up some good books, some biographies or autobiographies of people who have trusted in Christ and what their lives have looked like and what that simple trust and faith in God and his word and his character looks like. One commentator says about faith, and so here I'm going to quote this, it is trust or faith in the value and certainty of God's promised gift that will enable them, the audience, to persevere in their commitment to Jesus 
rather than to shrink back from the implications of that commitment. Have you ever been pushed in that similar way? To shrink back. We'll get into some examples here in in just a minute, but ponder that question now. Have you ever been pushed in your own heart, in your own life, in your own mind, from outside circumstances to not persevere in your faith in Christ? The point of these two verses in the author's argument is to have faith, continue in your faith, to keep believing, else we are in danger of missing the reality of our current and our future promise, which is rest. Rest. So imagine some of these questions coming up in the author's mind and maybe, maybe in some of your minds as well as we're walking through this text. Let me read these off. What is this rest and when will we enter it? Who enters it? How long does it remain open? When does the fear that they're going through, or the fear that we're supposed to have end? How much longer do we have to suffer? How can we know that we have arrived, and how do we know that it is sure and that it is steadfast? The author begins to answer these questions in the third component that we'll look at, which is the what, the when, and the who of rest. So that kind of opens up starting in verse 3 and ends in verse 11. But the author kind of does a couple of, or puts a couple of bookends around some of the logical flow of the argument. So rather than walk through in detail step by step, the first bookend is for we who have believed enter that rest. So that's kind of the who, the answer to that question. We who have believed enter that rest. It is a foregone conclusion. In fact, he uses the past tense to make that um, solidify in our hearts and minds that we who have believed enter that rest. The bottom bookend is in verse 9, where he summarizes it all for us. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So that's kind of the when it's possible. It's remaining, continuing open, his rest is, and the what that it is, his eternal Sabbath rest for his people. So that's kind of the first bookend, the who. The second bookend, when it's possible and what it is. And then rather than walk through the argument, let me hit the high points in chronological order to try to, sh- to show this flow. So first, we see that God's work was finished and his rest was initiated from the beginning of creation. Right after he finished creation, God initiated his rest. That's the first chronological step. Second, his inv- invitation for rest, for entering this rest, was continued to the Israelite in Moses' generation. So that's number two. Even though many failed to enter it, the invitation was there. Number three, the rest was not the promised land that Joshua brought the Israelites into because chronologically, step four, God promised this rest through David to come in the future. So therefore, step one initiated, step two continued the Israelites, step three, it wasn't the promised land, step four was continued through David's proclamation in Psalm 95. Therefore, we see verse 9, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So that's kind of the point that the author is trying to make. And we see and understand a little better that that what of that Sabbath rest is where all work, pain, difficulty, and striving 
is finished. We see a picture of this in Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 through 4. So we won't read it in detail, but let me point out some high points. God will dwell with his people. The dwelling place of God will be restored to being with man. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. This is kind of a quick summary or look at that promised future Sabbath rest that is still open today if you heed his voice and follow and believe in him. And that brings us to verse 10, which I think is a pivotal verse in the argument. So let me read verse 10. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So I think there are two common ways to understand and interpret this verse. So I want to point them out to you guys just to build the argument. First, that we experience his rest currently, that this Sabbath rest is accessible to us now. We've kind of looked at that a little bit already, that he's really pointing to a future rest And that doesn't necessarily make sense with the argument because he says to fear lest you fail to enter it and strive so that you can enter it. So there's something future they have not yet reached. Though I do agree fully that we can have contentment in this life by trusting Jesus. I don't think that's what the author's getting at in his argument right now. Secondly, we can see it as a future divine rest that's going to be inaugurated at Christ's second coming. Now that interpretation actually fits with the flow of the developed argument by the author, this future and this divine rest. And it's also consistent with the description of God's Sabbath rest. So it seems from the argument and from the structure we've looked at so far that it is the future rest in view that the author is talking about. And therefore, if it is, what is the evidence of this promise? How do we know that this promise is sure and that this promise is steadfast? The New American Standard Bible translation, I think, brings out a nuance of the Greek text that we don't see in the ESV. And I think it points to the fuller picture of what the author is getting at here in verse 10. In the NAS, it reads, For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. So let me say it again. The one who has entered his rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So who has accomplished his work? Who has been ushered into God's rest? And who is seated at the right hand of God? We can see this threaded throughout Hebrews. Jesus made purification for sins that is seated down right now. It's rested and completed at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus alone. Jesus is the creator of all things and the founder of our salvation. He's made complete through suffering. We see this in Hebrews. Jesus is our forerunner into our heavenly rest. Jesus is the founder, the pioneer, and the perfecter of our faith. He is our perfect example. Therefore, Because of Jesus and what he has accomplished, whoever can enter God's rest because Jesus has gone first. Therefore, it is sure and it is steadfast. Therefore, verse 11, let us strive to enter that rest in the same way that Jesus entered that rest. 
Like, that's a big deal. It is sure and steadfast because of Him and Him alone. He has finished it. He has entered. Not us. We cannot do it. We cannot accomplish it before a holy and a perfect God. So therefore, strive towards Christ. Now, what does this striving look like and how do we apply it? So what are some things? Let me ask you this question. What are some things in your life that draw you away from following God, that, that try to harden your heart from pursuing and having continued and growing faith in Him? Could be good things. Could be things like that really aren't moral in themselves, like money or possessions. Could be immoral things that you do or that you're exposed to, that you choose, that take your heart and make it hard towards Christ. Could be a job, entertainment, relationships, alcohol, drugs, sex, reputation, fear of man, and what they can do to you. All these things can take your heart away from God. They're not bad in themselves necessarily, but the temptation there is to draw you away from Christ. I'm walking through an elder cohort with some of the guys here in the church, and we ask some penetrating questions of one another and answer those penetrating questions honestly and earnestly. And so some of these things have come to the surface, surface in my own life. Not necessarily bad things, but like I find myself through this like fiercely independent and self-dependent. Not God-dependent, not Christ-dependent, but I think I can, I can bring things home. I can do things well. I can succeed. And so that drives a lot of my motivation behind some things that I do. That needs to be confessed and repented on or of, right? So ask God to reveal it to you in your life. What are those things drawing you away? To hone in, pay attention to what gets your temper riled up, what gets you really angry, what gets you really upset. Pay attention to what gets you depressed and discouraged. What's happening in that emotion is it's threatening that idol that you're holding tightly to. So ask God to reveal it. Also, there's a very strong aspect of community in this text And honestly, that we can see threaded throughout the entire Bible. So grab a friend, open up to him or her deeply and vulnerably. Don't remain hidden and don't neglect the grace of God that he gives through fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't neglect that. That is his provision to keep your heart from hardening as one another. And as someone opens up to you, Receive them with grace, knowing that you are in the same position that they are. Receive them with grace. Pray for them. Fight with them. Because doubt, anxiety, lies, deceit, and unbelief can subtly sink in. You know, sitting at the park this last Friday with my oldest daughter, thinking about the world around us and really some of these questions that come to the surface are, like, is this rest really real? Does this rest really matter? Is it really good and beneficial that we remain connected and pursuing Christ in the light of how easy it could be turning away in some of these areas? Melanie and I have had some interesting opportunities over the last, I'm going to not, hopefully not get this wrong, it's 2017, (laughs) so that's over the past 12 years that we've been married. Uh, Some of those experiences have taken place in other countries. Uh, one of them was in Lebanon, so we got to live and serve in Lebanon in the southern part on the border of Israel for a while. And there was a, a couple there that were what we call Muslim background believers. So they had, through the message of the gospel, chosen to turn from Islam and trust in Christ and change their very lives. As a result, they lost their jobs, 
They lost their families. They lost any opportunities they could have, and they were exiled completely out of the community that they were previously in. So how do they answer that question? How do they answer the question, is Jesus, is it real? Is it worth it? Because I've just lost everything. I can't even get a job because of my faith in Christ. The church, a very small church we were part of in, in Lebanon, was a, uh, an evangelical church, and the village we were in was a, a Christian background village. And so when this church started, the, the current Christians in the village, which we wouldn't call evangelical Christians or, or biblical Christians, we'd be more like Roman Orthodox that had a, I won't go into the details, but anyway, they had a corner on the market. They're like, we're the Christian church. Why are you preaching a gospel why are you teaching people the gospel and gathering together in homes to celebrate it and live together? We don't like that. You guys need to stop. And the Christians, the, the believers, the evangelicals in this small village said, we can't stop. There's not life anywhere else. And so the village leaders said, very well, throw them in prison. Get your behinds behind those bars and don't come out until you change. So that's what they did. They threw him in prison. And over time, they, so let me get this emphasized. The Christian background people in Lebanon threw the believers in Christ in prison because they threatened this corner of the market in the village. Over time, God changed hearts in the village. The believers continued in their faith in Christ, were taken out of prison and began to establish the church. And some of those that persecuted them that threw them in prison, that took away their jobs, that took away their money, are now believers worshiping in that same church. I mean, isn't that awesome? Like, as believers trusted and followed and continued in their faith of Christ, not only are they bolstered and encouraged looking towards that heavenly rest, but God uses that to make disciples of those who persecuted them, to change their lives so that they too can share in that same heavenly, eternal rest. Amen. You know, we experience similar things, maybe to a different context and a different degree, but we ask questions and go through circumstances like this. When the promise of satisfaction through an electronic screen seems to unyieldly, unyieldingly draw you towards its hollow facade of pleasure, what do you do? What do you think? When all you have to do is remain quiet at work, or simply nod and make small talk so you don't rock the relationship boat with your non-Christian coworkers, neighbors, or fellow carpoolers. What do you do? When all we need is one more drink, one more hit, one more night with a beautiful woman to make all this pain go away, at least for a little while. And then when we fail in our lives to believe that Jesus is better today and we make choices that turn our hearts away from him, what do we do? It is in periods like these that we are the most vulnerable and we're the most tempted to turn away. And it is in periods like these where we most need to cling to Jesus and when we most need one another. You've wrestled with some of these things. I've wrestled with some of these things. The author and the audience of Hebrews are wrestling or did wrestle with some of these things. All of these sufferings, difficulties, illicit promises, strong temptations are real. 
but they're also temporary. Yet even though they're temporary, they lure us towards asking that original question. Is Jesus really worth it? Is this rest really real? And does this rest really matter? Let me read this to you from a from a book called uh, Future Grace by John Piper. I think he kind of puts this a little bit succinct. Uh, when you know the truth about what happens to you after you die, when you understand that rest and you believe it and you are satisfied with all that God will be for you in the ages to come, that truth makes you free indeed. Free from the short, shallow, suicidal pleasures of sin and free for the sacrifices of mission and ministry that cause people to give glory to our Father in heaven. Brothers and sisters sitting in this congregation this morning, He is real. His rest does matter because God's Word is true, and He is true to His character. This proved out in Moses' generation, and many failed to enter it. Judgment and justice was there. It proved out in Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. He entered it. Proved out there. Therefore, it is real. It does matter for you. And it is real. And it does matter for the person sitting next to you. And it does matter for me. It is important that we persevere in our faith and not harden our hearts. Why? The author's going to get to this next. Because all of us, all of us, all of the history of humanity and past and the future of humanity to come will at some point stand before a holy and a just God with rest, eternal rest on one side and eternal judgment on the other side. So the author is going to get into this in the next component, the judgment seat of God. It's like a bright, flashing, amber warning light with very large and strong reflective signs saying, don't go forward, don't go here, the bridge is out. This is what the author is trying to communicate to us in this last part of chapter 4. It's not commonly how we approach this text, so I think, again, this will push on that worldview and that understanding, Uh, but I think it's consistent with the argument of the author that he's building for his audience, and for us. So component four, let me read this. Starting in verse 12, for or because, let me start slightly previous to that, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For or because the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him with whom we must give account. So in summary, God's word is surgical. It is precise and it is sharp. God's word is decisive. It leaves no room for gray areas. God's word is absolute. There is no other standard. And God's word is comprehensive. No one is outside of his judgment. God's word sees all And God's word knows all. So what does that mean? That means that you and I 
can't hide. That we are fully known. Let me elaborate by reading a few lines from one of the commentaries I looked at. The image created by these verses is that of a defendant being hauled before a judge whose eyes can penetrate into the depths of the soul and therefore the guilt of this defendant. The term usually translated laid bare or exposed that we see there in verse 13 refers more fully to the condemned criminal whose throat is exposed to the executioner's blade before God naked with the throat pulled back. To reinforce that distrust and disobedience toward God are really the greatest dangers facing the audience and not the temporal concerns that have convinced a few that drawing back is advantageous. So the faith in God is going to show them that this judgment, is what he's trying to say, this judgment is far worse than being shamed than losing your job, than losing your family, even than losing your life. This judgment is supreme. God's eternal judgment is far worse than anything negative that we could experience in this life. That's what the author's trying to say. That's the big bright, bright amber warning light. Don't go there. It's serious. It's to be feared. And now this is just, so he does that and then we won't get into the next passage in verse 4, but like he tells us the same word. That's that today do not harden your hearts. He tells us in the same word that he describes in these verses that it's living and active in our hearts and in our lives now. Brothers and sisters, he speaks by his grace through his word in your life now so that you don't have to experience and go through this judgment because of what Christ has achieved. So when we see this exposure in chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, where does that drive you? Where do you go with that? For Christian and non-Christian alike, this exposure of the Word of God today for our good and by His mercy and grace reveals the areas of our heart and life that are not consistent with God and His Word, where unbelief is hiding and where we are straying. In this way, His exposure by His Word to us today is actually a benefit. It's a grace to us. It causes us to need and yearn to be cleansed, redeemed, and restored, which must come from outside of us. It shows us how desperate we are for grace. And this grace is only found in Jesus Christ, our perfect and our high priest, which we'll get to more and develop that and explain that more in weeks to come. So Christian in this room, non-Christian in this room, listen to God's voice. Judgment is here and will be for us all in the future as we stand before a holy and a perfect God. What is your confidence? What is your confidence? We have seen in Hebrews that Jesus is better than angels, so we should listen to his message. He's better than Moses, so we should listen to his message. He's a better sin covering for us, 
Now we see Jesus is a better rest than anything and everything that this world has to offer. In fact, he is our only source of rest. He is the only one that can stand as a mediator between a holy and a perfect God and me and you and others as sinful human beings. He, Jesus, is our only hope. Therefore, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He is speaking to you through his word. And he is doing that today. Fear for one another, lest we fail to enter it. And brothers and sisters, persevere towards his rest. His rest. So as we look towards the Lord's Supper this morning and taking it as we do every week, let me leave you with these final considerations regarding these last two verses that we looked at. First, you are fully and utterly known and exposed before a just judge. You cannot hide. I cannot hide. He knows you perfectly and intimately, and he created you. At the same time, you are fully and completely loved. Like, get that. Don't miss that. I struggle with that because I've got this self-dependent, independent heart and capability. I can do it all by myself. I don't need his love until I come to the end of myself. I'm like, I can't do it. I need him. I need his love for me. You are fully and completely loved, and this is evidenced perfectly by the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our high priest, much what Edward brought up this morning. He has made a way to his rest, his eternal rest, and it is sure and it is steadfast, and it comes through his cross and by his blood. And that is what we remember as we take the Lord's Supper this morning and every morning. And if you're here and you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, you haven't placed your faith in Christ, we would just encourage you to not partake of this meal with us and instead wrestle through the truth of God's word that he reveals to us. To us. Ask the question, Lord, are you real and really am I good enough? And then see what he says through his word. So then the future, as his word works in your heart and your life, you can then accept him and come forward and rejoice in taking the Lord's Supper with us. But please, for this time, refrain. So as a family together, as brothers and sisters in Christ, let's remember what Christ has accomplished for us. Here I'm going to pray for us in just a minute, and there's going to be service tables at the front, service tables at the back. So after I finish praying... Please come when you're ready. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the perfect high priest, that you have completed and entered the rest of God and satisfied for those who trust and have faith in you the wrath of God on their lives. Lord, may we not deal with you lightly as we hear your voice on a given day, a given week, given year. May we take you seriously. Lord, and may we fight for the faith of one another. 
in this as well. Because on our own, Lord, we will fail and we will struggle. We need each other and you've given that to us as a grace. So Lord, this morning and in the weeks to come, may we fix our eyes and help one another fix our eyes on Christ, the perfect and only mediator that you've given us so that we can enter your perfect and complete rest. In Jesus' name, amen.